Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 146, January 1st to January 7th, 1864. Last week, we fought the Battle of Mossy Creek, a cavalry action in Tennessee where Longstreet is still operating in the eastern portion of that state. We talked about the Christmas holiday in connection with the period of history, and the Civil War had a brief recap of 1863. This week, we're going to spend the entire episode reading and analyzing an interesting letter that Patrick Claiborne writes in a plea to the Confederate government. Before we do that, though, I do want to just mention we have some Patreon content. This last month, we had Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, and then this week... We are actually, as we move into January, we are going to go back to the well of movie reviews. We're going to do back-to-back movies and kind of compare and contrast the two. It's going to be The Beguiled, and there was a Clint Eastwood version of that, as well as a Colin Farrell version, a more modern version of that movie. So just wanted to compare and contrast and see what's different. And if that sounds like something that would interest you, There is a link to the Patreon in the show description, and all those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. So here we get into the address that is written by Claiborne and signed by a couple of fellow officers. Moved by the exigency in which our country is now placed, we take the liberty of laying before you, unofficially, our views on the present state of affairs. The subject is so grave and our views so new, we feel it a duty both to you and the cause that before going further, we should submit them for your judgment and receive your suggestions in regard to them. We therefore respectfully ask you to give us an expression of our views in the premises. We have now been fighting for nearly three years, have spilled much of our best blood, and lost, consumed, or thrown to the flames, an amount of property equal in value to the specie currency of the world. Through some lack in our system, the fruits of our struggles and sacrifices have invariably slipped away from us and left us nothing but long lists of dead and mangled. Instead of standing defiantly on the borders of our territory or harassing those of the enemy, we are hemmed in today into less than two-thirds of it, and still the enemy menacingly confronts us at every point with superior forces. Our soldiers can see no end to this state of affairs, except in our own exhaustion. Hence, instead of rising to the occasion, they are sinking into a fatal apathy, growing wary of hardships and slaughters which promise no results. In this state of things, it is uneasy to understand why there is a growing belief that some black catastrophe is not far ahead of us, and that unless some extraordinary change is soon made in our condition, we must overtake it. The consequences of this condition are showing themselves more plainly every day. Restlessness of morals spreading everywhere, manifesting itself in the army and a growing disregard for private rights. Desertion spreading to a class of soldiers and never dared to tamper with before. Military commissions sinking in the estimation of the soldier, our supplies failing, our firesides in ruins. If this state continues much longer, we must be subjugated. Every man should endeavor to understand the meaning of subjugation before it is too late. We can give but a faint idea when we say it means the loss of all we now hold most sacred. Slaves and all other personal property, lands, homesteads, liberty, justice, safety, pride, manhood. 
It means that the history of this heroic struggle will be written by the enemy, that our youth will be trained by northern school teachers, will learn from northern school books their version of the war, will be impressed by all the influence of history and education to regard our gallant dead as traitors, our maimed veterans as fit objects for derision. It means the crushing of southern manhood, the hatred of our former slaves, who will, on a spy system, be our secret police. The conqueror's policy is to divide the conquered into factions and stir up animosity among them, and in training an army of Negroes, the North no doubt holds this thought in perspective. We can see three great causes operating to destroy us. First, the inferiority of our armies to those of the enemy in point of numbers. Second, the poverty of our single source of supply in comparison with his several sources. Third, the fact that slavery from being one of our chief sources of strength at the commencement of the war has now, in a military point of view, become one of our chief sources of weakness. So there is a lot to unpack here in the beginning part of the address, and we're going to keep going because it goes quite a lengthy bit of ways and is interesting, I think, to understand just the mindset of the Confederates, and especially amongst the officer corps. And here we have a couple of individuals agreeing with Claiborne. But at least in the beginning, we see how there is a very much an emphasis on how long the war has gone on, obviously. And we say this a lot in the narrative episodes, and we'll continue to say, especially as we get into 1864, the Confederacy can ill afford to lose all the men that they're losing, right? They need to be able to retain the amount of men they have. Obviously, the North has more of these individuals, especially if they're adding in the United States color troops into that factor. And obviously, they have more. So that is going to definitely be a problem. And it's one of the three issues that they list here. That's the armies are bigger. They're also being able to draw on multiple areas for supply and this kind of speaks a little bit toward the poor infrastructure of the South in that there is kind of an availability of supplies that just doesn't get to the armies, right? Because they don't really have a way in which they can get them there. So there is this maritime presence that they have that is obviously making it so the Union is able to be supplied from abroad as well as, and we talked about this a little bit, as well as from the Midwest, places that aren't touched by the war, it's very hard to see a place in the South that has not been touched by the war at this point. So obviously, there's an emphasis on that early too, about the burning of homesteads and, and firesides, and that is definitely weighing on the minds of the individuals in the armies. And now, here, this is the main point that we're going to get to later here in this address, is that now... The Confederacy does have an advantage in terms of manpower and just labor, right, in terms of slavery. However, it is becoming less and less tenable that that is an advantage. It's now more of a weakness because the individuals are either being escaping and going to the Union lines, especially as the Union armies advance deeper into these states and they establish state governments that are going to protect them then it's kind of plain to see that this is no longer an advantage. And obviously, if you're not utilizing this manpower correctly, as we're going to get into here, then it is seen as a detriment. 
The enemy already opposes us at every point with superior numbers and is endeavoring to make the preponderance irresistible. President Davis, in his recent message, says the enemy has recently ordered a large conscription and made a subsequent call for volunteers to be followed, if ineffectual, by still further draft. In addition, the President of the United States announces that he has already in training an army of 100,000 Negroes as good as any troops, and every fresh raid he makes and new slice of territory he wrests from us will add to this force. Every soldier in our army already knows and feels our numerical inferiority to the enemy. One of men in the field has prevented him from reaping the fruits of his victories and has prevented him from having the furlough he expected after the last reorganization, and when he turns from the wasting armies in the field to look at the source of supply, he finds nothing in the prospect to encourage him. Our single source of supply is that portion of our white men fit for duty and not now in the ranks. The enemy has three sources of supply. First, his own motley population. Secondly, our slaves. And thirdly, Europeans whose hearts are fired into a crusade against us by fictitious pictures of the atrocities of slavery and who meet no hindrance from their government in such enterprise because these governments are equally antagonistic to the institution. In touching the third cause, the fact that slavery has become a military weakness, we may rouse prejudice and passion, but the time has come when it would be madness not to look at our danger from every point of view and to probe it to the bottom. Apart from the assistance that home and foreign prejudice against slavery has given to the North, slavery is a source of great strength to the enemy in purely military point of view by supplying him with an army from our granaries, but it is our most vulnerable point, a continued embarrassment, and in some respects, an insidious weakness. Whether slavery is once seriously disturbed, whether by the actual presence on their approach of the enemy, or even by a cavalry raid, the whites can no longer with safety to their properly, openly sympathize with our cause. The fear of their slaves is continually haunting them, and from silence and apprehension many of these soon learn to wish the war stopped on any terms. The next stage is to take the oath to save property, and they become dead to us, if not open enemies. To prevent raids, we are forced to scatter our forces and are not free to move and strike like the enemy. His vulnerable points are carefully selected and fortified depots. Ours are found in every point where there is a slave to set free. All along the line, slavery is comparatively valueless to us for labor, but of great and increasingly worth to the enemy for information. It is an omnipresent spy system, pointing to our value of men to the enemy, revealing our positions, purposes, and resources, and yet acting so safely and secretly that there is no means to guard against it. Even in the heart of our country, where our hold upon the secret espionage is firmest, it waits but the opening fire of the enemy's battle line to wake it, like a torpid serpent, into venomous activity. So there you go, too. They're getting information from these enslaved individuals as well, who, and... Also, it should be noted that anybody who's taking the oath to kind of save a way in which they can kind of keep their property and maybe not be treated so harshly by the occupying armies, these individuals are also turning against them. So there's a lot of things that they're pointing out here that are being turned around, whereas the North doesn't have that problem, right? They don't have to worry about that. In view of the state of affairs, what does our country propose to do? In the words of President Davis, no effort must be spared to add largely to our effective force as promptly as possible. The source of our supplies to be found in restoring to the army all those who improperly absent, putting it into substitution, modifying the exemption law, restricting details, 
and placing in the ranks such of the able-bodied men now employed as wagoners, nurses, cooks, and other employees as are doing service for which the Negroes may be found competent. Most of the men improperly absent, together with many of the exempts and men having substitutes, are now without the Confederate lines and cannot be calculated on. If all the exempts capable of bearable arms were enrolled, it will give us the boys between 18, the men above 45, and those persons who are left at home to meet the wants of the country and the army, with this modification of the exemption law, will remove from the field and manufactories most of the skilled that directed agriculture and mechanical labor, and as stated by the president, details will have to be made to meet the wants of the country, thus sending many of the men to be derived from this source back to their homes again. Independently of this, experience proves that striplings and men above conscript age break down and swell the sick list more than they do the ranks. The portion now in our lines of the class who have substitutes is not on the whole a hopeful element, for the motives that created it must have been stronger than patriotism, and these motives added to what many of them will call breach of faith, will cause to not be forthcoming, and others to be unwilling and discontented soldiers. The remaining sources mentioned by the President have been so closely pruned in the Army of Tennessee that they will be found not to yield largely. The supply from all these sources, together with what we now have in the field, will exhaust the white race, and though it should be greatly exceed our expectations and put us on equality with the enemy, or even give us temporary advantages, still we have no reserve to meet unexpected disaster or to supply a protracted struggle. Like past years, 1864 will diminish our ranks by the casualties of war, and what source of repair is there left with us? We therefore see in the recommendations of the President only a temporary expedient, which at the best will leave us 12 months hence in the same predicament we are now in. The president attempts to meet only one of the depressing causes mentioned. For the other two, he has proposed no remedy. They remain to generate lack of confidence in our final success and to keep us moving downhill as heretofore. Adequately to meet the causes which are now threatening to ruin our country, we propose in addition to a modification of the president's plans that we retain in service for the war all troops now in service, and that we immediately commence training a large reserve of the most courageous of our slaves, and further, that we guarantee freedom within a reasonable time to every slave in the South, who shall remain true to the Confederacy in this war. As between the loss of independence and the loss of slavery, we assume that every patriot will freely give up the latter, give up the Negro slave rather than be a slave himself. We are not correct in this assumption, and only remains to show how this great national sacrifice is, in all human probabilities, to change the current success and sweep the invader from our country. So there you go. You get into like the meat of this address and that Claiborne is saying, hey, why don't we take this otherwise detriment to our cause and we arm them and train them and make sure that there is something that they're getting in return. And this isn't necessarily something that's entirely off the wall, right? In that we talked a little bit about Nathan Bedford Forrest and he sets up a deal. You know, I, I have seen some sources that say this is kind of fictitious and that he sets up a deal with formerly enslaved individuals that serve under him. But then there's also records of these individuals serving with him and he kind of gives them the same deal. Like you're going to be free either way. So why not go ahead and ride with me? And then that way, you know, you're still going to have a home where home is, so to speak, uh, in the South. You definitely have to feel for the members of the Army of Tennessee, too. They're constantly at a disadvantage 
right? And even when they do have the advantage of, say, Chickamauga, then as kind of mentioned in this address, something disastrous happens in that George Thomas turns as a good performance and they end up attacking a position that they're going to be draining in terms of supplies and casualties are going to start mounting up. So that happens at Chickamauga. And obviously, even if, as mentioned, they're bringing in all these individuals into the army, something like that happens and it saps the strength, that's going to be negative and obviously not going to be able to win the war that way. Our country has already some friends in England and France, and there are strong motives to induce these nations to recognize and assist us, but they cannot assist us without helping slavery, and to do this would be in the conflict of their policy for the last quarter of the century. England has paid hundreds of millions to emancipate her West India slaves and break up the slave trade. Could she now consistently spend her treasure to reinstate slavery in this country? With this barrier once removed, the sympathy and the interest of these and other nations will accord with our own and we expect from them both moral support and material aid. One thing is certain, as soon as the great sacrifice to independence is made and known in foreign countries, there will be a complete change of front in our favor of the sympathies of the world. This measure will deprive the North of the moral and material aid which it now derives from the bitter prejudices which with foreigners view the institution and its war, if continued, will henceforth be so despicable in their eyes that the source of recruiting will be dried up. It will leave the enemy's Negro army no motive to fight for, and will exhaust the source from which it has been recruited. The idea it is their special mission to war against slavery has held growing sway over the northern people for many years, and has at length ripened into an armed and bloody crusade against it. This baleful superstition so far supplied them with a courage and constancy not their own. It is the most powerful and honestly entertained plank in their war platform. Knock this away and what is left? A bloody ambition for more territory? A pretended veneration for the Union, which one of their own most distinguished orators, Dr. Beecher, in his Liverpool speech, openly avowed was only used as a stimulus to stir up the anti-slavery crusade? And lastly, the poisonous and selfish interests which are fungus growth of the war itself. Mankind may fancy it a greater duty to destroy slavery, but what interest can mankind have in upholding this remainder of the northern war platform? Their interests and feelings will be diametrically opposed to it. The measures we propose will strike dead all John Brown fanaticism and compel the enemy to draw off altogether, or in our eyes of the world to swallow the Declaration of Independence without the sauce and disguise of philanthropy. This delusion of fanaticism at an end, thousands of northern people will have leisure to look at home and see the gulf of despotism into which they themselves are rushing. So I don't know if necessarily Claiborne is right here in that he's saying if you take away the war on slavery itself, then they're going to have nothing to fight for anymore. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. There's plenty of individuals who are out there fighting for preservation of the Union. They want to make sure that the Confederacy stays in the United States of America. So this is part of the address here that I don't necessarily think is 100% accurate but he is hitting on some pretty major points in that you know there is definitely a disadvantage in terms of manpower and they're not going to be able to fix it essentially that's uh, 100% accurate the measure will at one blow strip the enemy of foreign sympathy and assistance and transfer them to the south it'll dry up two of his three sources of recruiting it'll take from his negro army the only motive it could have to fight against the south and will probably cause much of it to desert over to us 
that will deprive his cause of the powerful stimulus of fanaticism and will enable him to see the rock on which his so-called friends are now piloting him. The immediate effect of the emancipation and enrollment of Negroes on the military strength of the South would be to enable us to have armies numerically superior to those of the North and a reserve of any size we might think necessary, to enable us to take the offensive, move forward, and forage on the enemy. It would open to us in perspective another and almost untouched source of supply and furnish us with the remains of preventing temporary disaster and carrying on a protracted struggle. It would instantly remove all the vulnerability, embarrassment, and inherent weakness to which result from slavery. The approach of the enemy would no longer find every household surrounded by spies, the fear that sealed the master's lips, and the avarice that has, in so many cases, tempted him practically to desert us, would alike be removed. There would be no recruits awaiting the enemy with open arms, and no complete history of every neighborhood with ready guides, no fear of insurrection in the rear, or anxieties for the fate of loved ones when our armies move forward. The chronic irritation of hope deferred would be joyfully ended with the Negro, and the sympathies of his whole race would be due in his native South. It would restore confidence in an early termination of the war with all its inspiring consequences, and even if contrary to all expectations, the enemy should succeed in overrunning the South, instead of finding a cheap, ready means of holding its down, he would find a common hatred and thirst for vengeance, which would break into acts at every favorable opportunity, would prevent him from settling our lands, and render the South a very unprofitable conquest. It would remove forever all selfish taint from our cause and place independence above every question of property. The very magnitude of the sacrifice itself, such as no nation has ever voluntarily made before, would appeal to our enemies, destroy his spirit and his finances, and fill our hearts with the pride and singleness of purpose, which will clothe us with a new strength in battle. Apart from all other aspects of the question, the necessity for more fighting men is upon us. We can only get a sufficiency by making the Negro share the danger and hardships of the war. If we arm and train him and make him fight for the country in her hour of dire distress, every consideration of principle and policy demand that we should set him and his whole race who side with us free. It is a first principle with mankind that he who offers his life in defense of the state should receive from her in return his freedom and happiness and we believe in acknowledgement of this principle. The Constitution of the Southern States has reserved to their respective governments the power to free slaves from notorious services to the state. It is politic, besides. For many years, ever since the agitation at the subject of slavery commenced, the Negro has been dreaming of freedom, and his vivid imagination has surrounded that condition so many gratifications that it has become the paradise of his hopes. To attain it, he will attempt dangers and difficulties not exceeded by the bravest soldier in the field. The hope of freedom is perhaps the only moral incentive that can be applied to him in his present condition. It would be preposterous then to expect him to fight against it with any degree of enthusiasm. Therefore, we must bind him to our cause by no doubtful bonds. We must leave no possible loophole for treachery to creep in. The slaves are dangerous now, but armed, trained, and collected in an army, they would be a thousandfold more dangerous. And therefore, when we make soldiers of them, we must make free men of them beyond all question, and thus enlist their sympathies also. We can do this more effectually than the North can now. For we can give the Negro not only his own freedom, but that of his wife and child, and can secure it to him in his own home. To do this, we must immediately make his marriage and parental relations sacred in the eyes of the law, and forbid their sale. The past legislation of the South concedes that a large, free middle class of Negro touch the institution at all. We would do best to make most of it, and by emancipating the whole race upon reasonable terms, 
and within such reasonable time as will prepare both races for the change, secure to ourselves all the advantages, and to our enemies all the disadvantages that can arise, both at home and abroad, from such a sacrifice. Satisfy the Negro that if he faithfully adheres to our standard during the war, he shall receive his freedom and that of his race. Give him, as an earnest, our intention such immediate immunities as will impress him, our sincerity, and in keeping with his new condition, enroll a portion of his class as soldiers of the Confederacy, and we can change the race from a dread of weakness to a position of strength. So there's more to unpack here in that kind of waxing about what exactly you need to trade in order for these individuals to fight for you, and obviously that's going to be freedom, of course, and this is when we get into kind of this question of, well, what exactly is this all about, right? Because I think it's disingenuous to say that slavery is not a cause of the war and therefore it's not just about being free but i think it's also here you kind of see the desperation in this address and that we need to do this or else we are going to lose and there's no point in continuing to fight if we're going to lose right there's no more point in having these individuals die because this is a losing effort and they're seeing that here even here at the end of 1863 and the beginning of 1864 they understand that so there's a lot of thought that is placed into this, but doesn't necessarily line up with what the Confederacy stands for. And I don't think that the answer is yes to that question. But you see, we repeatedly get this picture of the Union Army and the Northerners as being invaders and wanting to subjugate the South. We had that very early in this address talking about there's going to be individuals who are going to teach their own version of the war and kind of wipe away the what the confederacy did or what they stood for and obviously that's a huge fear for everybody too and that they're not going to be remembered in some kind of way for this war effort that they've gone through why they were fighting obviously and a lot of them are fighting for this notion of liberty and freedom certainly patrick claiborne is and they don't want that to be wiped away either will the slaves fight the helots of Sparta stood their master's good steed in battle. In the great sea fight of Lepanto, where the Christians checked forever the spread of Mohammedism over Europe, the galley slaves of portions of the fleet were promised freedom and called on to fight at critical moments in the battle. They fought well, and civilization owes them those brave galley slaves. The Negro slaves of Santo Domingo fight for freedom, defeated their white masters and the French troops sent against them. Negro slaves of Jamaica revolted and under the name of Maroons, held the mountains against their masters for 150 years. And the experience of this war has been so far that half-trained Negroes have fought as bravely as many other half-trained Yankees. If, contrary to their training of a lifetime that can be made to face and fight bravely against their former masters, how much more probable is it that with allurement of a higher reward led by those masters, they would submit to discipline and face dangers? We will briefly notice a few arguments against this course. It is said republicanism cannot exist without the institution. Even were this true, we would prefer any form of government of which the southern people may have the molding to one forced upon us by a conqueror. It is said the white man cannot perform agricultural labor in the south. The experience of this army during the heat of summer from Bowling Green, Kentucky to Tupelo, Mississippi, is that the white man is healthier when doing reasonable work in the open field than at any other time. It is said that an army of Negroes cannot be spared for the fields. A sufficient number of slaves is now administering to luxury alone to supply the place of all we need. We believe it would be better to take half the able-bodied men off a plantation than to take one master mine that economically regulated its operation. 
leave some of the skill at home and take some of the muscle to fight with. It is said slaves will not work after they are freed. We think necessity and a wise legislation will compel them to labor for a living. It is said it will cause terrible excitement and some disaffection from our cause. Excitement is far preferable to the apathy which now exists, and disaffection will not be among the fighting men. It is said slavery is all we are fighting for, and if we give it up, we give it all up. Even if this were true, which we deny, slavery is not all our enemies are fighting for. It is merely the pretense to establish sectional superiority and a more centralized form of government, and to provide us of our rights and liberties. We have now briefly proposed a plan which we believe will save the country. It may be imperfect, but in all human probability, it will give us our independence. No objection ought to outweigh it which is not weightier than independence. If it is worthy of being put in practice, it ought to be mooted quickly before the people and urged earnestly by every man who believes in its efficacy. Negroes will require much training. Training will require much time, and there is danger that this concession to common sense may come too late. So here we have also the individual who signed it. It's not only Patrick Claiborne, but there's a couple other individuals here, uh, a couple other officers that signed it as well. So we have like-minded individuals here. And it is interesting that he gives kind of this counter-argument for why they should do this. And he does mention that it's kind of against what they're talking about. But, you know, one of the things that you can kind of point out and he kind of gets at is that, hey, I mean, we don't need to adhere to the constitution anymore. We're making our own country, our own laws. And so why do we need to follow those rules? We can just make our own rules, especially if we're free, we can make our own rules. So he's kind of pointing out to the fact that like, why can't we just make it up? Right. Which is an interesting point, I think in all of this. So obviously this address is going to garner some criticism of Claiborne. He's suggesting something that a lot of people are just not going to be comfortable with. It poses some interesting questions, though. For one, if the Confederacy adopts at least in part of this plan, then what's going to happen, right? We don't exactly know how things are going to move forward. And we're never going to know because it's going to get shot down. Spoiler alert. So at least not until closer to the end of the war is even something like this going to be considered. So we're going to close out this week. And next week, we're going to come back with Thomas Rosser's raid into West Virginia and maybe a little preview of the strategic situation. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.